Please turn with me in your Bibles or find your bulletin insert that has our passage today, Genesis 2, uh, 1 through 3. We are in the second of a 15-sermon series uh, on the book of Genesis talking about God's gifts to us that we find in this book of Genesis. And even though we're talking about the principle of Sabbath today, if you're looking for this sermon to answer why all of a sudden we see the Lord's Day as, as the Sabbath for the Christians, so to speak, while they're worshiping and resting, uh, you won't find it in this sermon. You, I think, need to go to a New Testament text for that in the book of Acts or one of Paul's letters. Uh, but uh, we will deal with the text as we have it. And it's a jam-packed sermon, so uh, please uh, try and hang in there with me, okay? Well, let's read the Word of God together. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. I ran across an article somewhere that I was reading entitled Ancient Wisdom, And in it, the author, and I don't know whether she's a Christian or not, but she was talking about this sanity of the Sabbath in the midst of this world where everything just seems to happen all of the time and we keep going and going and going and going. And she begins to talk about how the Sabbath is really a mental health tool as far as she's concerned, regardless of your religion, and whether you practice it or not. She goes on to say, and and listen as how this sounds like a commercial. She says, It's a way to stop the onslaught of obligations, improve your social life, keep the house clean, revive your tired marriage, elevate spiritual awareness, and improve productivity at work all overnight and without cost. As one person put it, given results like these, the author's conclusion that Sabbath is the greatest gift that the Hebrews gave to humanity should come as no surprise. But obviously that person's mistaken because the Hebrews didn't give the gift of the Sabbath, did they? God did. We just read that in our passage. God gives it. And the Sabbath is one of those overarching principles, much like the tithe, that we find in Scripture even before the law. And then we see it included in the law, and we see it talked about in other places all across Scripture. In fact, the Sabbath commandment I read is the most frequently reiterated of all 613 commandments to be found in the Old Testament the most frequently reiterated. Ding, 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 ding. That should tell us something. That should tell us how important this gift is 
that God has given to all of His creation. And I say it's a gift He gives because He includes it as part of the creation story as our text makes clear. We can see that creation comes to an end. We just read, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. God finished the work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work. I think that any time we tackle an Old Testament passage like this, it it pays us to remember that we are dealing with the Oriental mind. We are not dealing with a Western mind. And that means we cannot take our translated words for granted that they mean what we think they mean. And I'm specifically talking about the word rest in this text. I mean, think about it. Does God get tired? I mean, after these six days of creating the world and the universe and all that we know and all that we do not know, was God tired so that He needed rest? Remember, Scripture, we interpret Scripture with other Scripture. What does Psalm 121 teach us? God never slumbers. God never sleeps. He doesn't need rest. Genesis 2 helps us right here in our text If we'll study it, God, we're told, finished. God finished the work. So we see this rest is a cessation of work. He ceased working on the seventh day because His creation was very good, as the end of chapter 1 puts it. In other words, His creation fulfilled His purpose for it. That's what we talked about in last week's sermon, or part of what we talked about. And what I want you to do is is think of an artist. You know, an artist is working at an easel. He's been working on this painting for a long time, and he thinks he's about finished. He steps back to gain perspective. And as he looks it over, he decides, oh, yeah, it needs a couple of brush strokes there and a a line there and a, a couple of more brush strokes. And then he's finished, and that's the picture that we're given here at the end of this creation story. God's world is created in exactly the way He envisioned it. So He stops. He ceases the work of creation. But notice, He then does something else according to our text. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. John Calvin makes an interesting point in his commentary on Genesis when he writes that God blessed this seventh day in order that we might celebrate the excellence and dignity of His work. And Calvin goes on to say that God could have created the world in the blink of an eye, but that He did it in six days. He took six days in order that He might engage us in the consideration of His works. And Calvin says he had the same end in view with this day of rest. And then Calvin sort of sums up his comments by saying the proper business of the whole life, that's your life and my life, is to consider the infinite goodness, justice, 
power and wisdom of God in this magnificent theater of heaven and earth. And in Calvin's words, we see the first purpose of this day of rest and gladness that we sang about a few moments ago. We have the time to consider the works of God, not just for the works themselves, but so that we might, through the works, know the God who created them. Think about what David says in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now David is not talking about the principle of the Sabbath in that psalm, but he is making the point that he has taken the time to look and reflect at God's wonderful creation. You see, if all we do is work day after day after day after day, when are we going to have the time to consider all He's made and therefore who He really is and what He's accomplished? This is part of what Paul's getting at in Romans 1. When speaking about the wicked who suppress the truth, he writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? Paul tells us right there in Romans 1. Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that He has made. If we look at God's wonderful creation out there, we can see if we look, if we take the time to consider, the time to reflect, the time to meditate, we can see His eternal power and deity. It just might be that some of those wicked who are suppressing the truth have never stepped back long enough from their worldly pursuits to actually look at God's creation. If you don't take the time to look and consider, how can you ever see His power and deity? How can you know that God is God? If we don't build margin into our lives, the kind of margin that God blessed and even commands through the Sabbath, we don't have time to consider and reflect upon who He is because of His works. This is really clear in Exodus 31 where God says the purpose of the Sabbath is so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. In other words, this gift of the Sabbath is a reminder of who God is and what His intentions are for His people how we are set apart for His purposes. This is why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man in Mark 2, or partially why He says it. The regular observance of this day of rest serves a purpose for our benefit. Yes, it helps our physical bodies to rest, but it helps us primarily to come to a deeper understanding of who God is. Sort of like we find in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. You hear what God's saying to us there? Be still. Cease work. And know that I am God. Okay, so the first purpose 
of the Sabbath is to consider the works of God. A second purpose of this day of rest and gladness is for us to see that in our obedience in observing this hallowed day, we point the world to God's sovereignty, to the fact that He is ruler and king over all. When God took this day and set it aside, it wasn't as if He was saying, my work is all done now, the world is yours. You know, just go on out and live your life. Instead, the Sabbath represents, as one commentator put it, taking his place at the helm. This is that to which Israel's observance of the Sabbath gives recognition. When we place this God-given gift of margin in our lives, we're saying that even our time belongs to God. You see, it's another way of saying that God is in control and and knows what is best for His creation. As God makes His appeal through us, ambassadors for Christ that we are, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we give the proper picture of God, the proper glimpse of God of who He really is, in that He is a God who orders even our time. Why else would Moses pray to Him in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Thirdly, this day of rest and gladness is a call to worship and the subsequent faith that goes with it. Now, we can't say that from our text. You don't see the the word worship or the concept of worship anywhere here in Genesis 2. But we gain it from the rest of what is taught in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, think about it. If we recognize God as creator, this God of all power, and the one who is in control over all of His creation, then certainly that Knowledge inspires us, it motivates us to worship. If this is who God is, and it is, then He's worthy of our worship. This is why Psalm 97 begins the way it does. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. If God's in control, let the earth rejoice. Let His people praise Him. Let them worship. This is part of what Isaiah 58 speaks to when we read, If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, then you shall take delight in the Lord. If we honor this margin, this gift of God, we're calling the principle of the Sabbath, then we take delight in the Lord. Remember, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God. That sounds like worship to me. Enjoying Him forever. That sounds like taking delight in Him. As we've established, Genesis 2 does not mention worship in conjunction with the Sabbath. And so you might be thinking, well, how did Israel end up worshiping on the Sabbath then? 
Well, we don't have time to go into that today, but I'll just give you the short answer, and that is that during the time of the exile, it appears that uh, Sabbath-keeping became, in essence, a sign of covenant, keeping the covenant to the nation of Israel. They were away from the temple. They couldn't worship at the temple. It was important for them to show that God was still in control and sovereign over all their lives, even if they were exiled from their homeland, from the promised land. And so they began to worship on that Sabbath day and to keep it, to show to the world around them, to show to even their captors that our God is sovereign and in control. And so that's how it comes to us as well as we see all through Scripture and on even into the New Testament. Again, it's the question, how can we not worship if we're taking delight in God? It's a day set aside for us, surely, but one in which we not only rest, but also worship and take delight in doing God's will. In other words, it's a day of rest and refreshment for our physical bodies, but also a day of refreshment for our souls. And of course, the medical community affirms the wisdom of this pattern of work and rest, of activity and ceasing activity. We all know people who have died way too young in their lives because they went full bore. They just went and worked all of the time. 60 and 70 hour weeks, seven day weeks, over and over and over again. That's not how God intends us to live. That's not what this gift is all about. But we must not yield to the temptation of only resting with no corporate worship. We learn this expressly from our Lord. When we see His pattern of life given to us when it comes to the Sabbath day in Luke 4.16 where we read He went to the synagogue as His custom was on the Sabbath day. Or as we would put it, He went to worship on the Sabbath. Verses like that are in the Gospels for our benefit if we take the time to listen, if we have the ears to hear. I mean, think about it. Jesus knew everything about God. Jesus was God. He was fully man and fully God. And yet, what does He do on the Sabbath day? He goes to the synagogue to read God's Word. He goes to talk about God's Word. He goes to pray. He goes to be with others of the faith. If Jesus did that on a regular basis, surely you and I need to do that. You know, He could have called all of that off. He could have said our forefathers were wrong during the exile to start worshiping on the Sabbath. He didn't do that. As his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now we said it's a call to worship. We also said it's a call to worship and the subsequent faith that goes with it. The faith aspect is simply believing that if we follow God's call on our lives, including stepping away from earning a living one day a week, then we will still make it. That God in His sovereignty will continue to care for you and me and for our families, just like He cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. 
that just like the tithe is a method God uses to help us to learn to trust in Him for all of our needs, so is the gift of the Sabbath a method to teach us that life does not depend on our feverish activity as Walter Brueggemann puts it in his commentary. And that's what we are. You know, that's what Americans are. That's why I wanted to use that phrase. We are feverish in our activity. We just think that the world is going to fall to pieces if we stop doing something for one hour. It teaches us that even our time in life is His gift to us and that we have enough time to get everything done and to make a living for our families even when we apply the principle of the Sabbath. Now, if you don't believe that's true, you ask Truett Cathy, owner of Chick-fil-A. That's one of the most successful fast food companies in America today. It may be the most successful. I'm sorry I didn't look it up to find that out. But I'd put it in at least the top three if it's not number one. And do you ever get to eat Chick-fil-A on the Lord's Day? No, because they're closed. You won't find one anywhere open. That's Sabbath-keeping 101 for all of America to witness. What a witness for God and His rule, the truth of His Word, and the biblical call to faith. Well, finally... The purpose of this Sabbath, fourthly, is to make sure we understand and believe in the true rest of God. Remember, our passage here takes place before the fall of mankind. It takes place before Adam and Eve disobey God. It takes place before sin enters the world because of their disobedience and selfishness. We see God ceasing work because His creation is not simply good, but very good. It's all that He wants it to be. And in the midst of that creation, we have God creating man in His own image, male and female. He created them. And because we are made in God's image, this rest of God is a promised rest for you and me. You see, as the principle of the Sabbath is kept week by week, it's a faithful reminder of how creation is intended. And we need that reminder because this Sabbath rest given by God was shattered by sin. And at least in the Old Testament, I think it's safe to say it was never fully restored. That's why Psalm 95.11 has God saying, Therefore, I swore in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. And you have to remember the context of that psalm. It's not talking about the principle of Sabbath. It's talking about the promised land. God's talking about that original generation of the children of Israel who left Egypt because of all the miracles that He performed on their behalf. And then when it was time to enter the promised land, they said, no, we're too afraid. Those people living in the promised land are like giants compared to us. There's no way we can take that land even with your help. And they refused, refused to go in. 
because of a lack of faith. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes the point in his teaching that the promised land was not the ultimate rest. Otherwise, David would not have spoken centuries later in that psalm I just quoted for you of a rest still remaining. And so the writer of Hebrews in his fourth chapter takes this same verse from Psalm 95 and begins to use that scripture as a warning for faithfulness for you and me, all those who read his book. He says, good news came to us just as to them. But the message which they heard did not benefit them because it did not meet with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed enter that rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he sets a certain day today, saying through David, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If we lack God's promised rest, that means we're spiritually stranded. As one person put it, it means we're stuck in the wilderness somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. This writer in Hebrews, as he speaks of God's rest, is calling you and me to take a long look at our spiritual condition. And he points us to Jesus Christ as we do that self-examination. He understands that Jesus is the new Joshua who leads His people into the promised land. You know, Moses didn't get to do it, but Joshua did. And that next generation went into the promised land through the power of God Almighty. And this writer is making the point that Jesus is the one who, just like Joshua in the ancient times, can lead His people, you and me, into God's promised rest. This is the same Jesus who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now make sure you hear what Jesus says there. He doesn't say come to the Bible, though He affirms the importance of knowing and using God's Word in our lives. He doesn't say come to the church, though we know He taught and modeled the importance of worship and getting together with others in the faith. He doesn't say come to the wise or the educated, although He affirms biblical wisdom and the importance of assessing our priorities in life through Christian counsel. No, He simply says come to me. To me, and I will give you rest. And so the question is do you know this rest? Do you know God's rest in Jesus Christ? You know, the prophet Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. The psalmist put it the other way. Today is the day 
Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts. May we do just that. Not harden our hearts. And look to Jesus for the rest we need all of our lives to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.